Freedom, home in the right job. Failure, hardship without reassessing judgment. If you're finally here to recognize the journey, we can find hope and real joy with FHRJ, the Fair Housing and Racial Justice Podcast with Rose Ramirez, the civil rights investigator of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. FHRJ, the Fair Housing and Racial Justice Podcast, is part of the Race and Wealth Network. Hello, everyone. My name is Rose Ramirez, and you are listening to the Fair Housing and Racial Justice Podcast. We're going to be doing something a little bit different today. We have a very exciting conversation that was taped live with Mignio Tekabed. She is the director of the documentary, What Happened in Chocolate City. And then also Mr. Mansa Johnson, who's the director of photography. What Happened in Chocolate City is a documentary that explores the rise and decline of D.C., which is um, our nation's most prominent black community. And it does this through the narrative of three individuals. You'll hear us reference John, which is an older gentleman who experienced a fire in his public housing. You'll hear us reference Mike, who has really returned to his community after years of incarceration um, and really helped it thrive. And then you'll hear us talk about Zarina, who is just 11 years old growing up in this same community. And each of these individuals really represents a generational experience that many black Washingtonians faced over the past century. So we're really excited to bring you this conversation. We do talk a little bit about Dr. Bruce Purnell, who is the executive director and founder at the Love More Movement, who is also featured in the documentary. So please enjoy. All right, everyone. So um, I hope everyone enjoyed the film. Um, if you weren't able to come yesterday, I suggest that you find a screening. Um, we'll talk a little bit more with um, both the director and the director of photography later about times that you can catch the first half. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed the second half and have your questions ready. So let us welcome the film director, Mignote Kabir, and then the director of photography that did the lovely photos of DC, Mansa Johnson. All right, so first off, thank you, one, for the documentary. Thank you for coming today. I really think that taking the time to chat this afternoon about this film was so strong for me because it created a narrative that I don't think we're having around gentrification and housing policy. And I know you're a California native, so we can probably spend an entire afternoon talking about how this is happening happening throughout communities in, the, in America, but what really drove you and inspired you to make the film about Washington, D.C. Hi, everyone. Thank you guys so much for coming, and thank you guys for organizing this. Um, yeah, she mentioned I'm from California, Southern California, and when I had initially moved to D.C. for school in 2010, some of my family that had already been out here was, you know, I, I knew that the city was Chocolate City, and I was really excited to come to a place um, that had such a diverse, diverse group of black people and also just a strong legacy of black history and black culture and the arts here. And when I came here, I was just one year shy of the black population going below 50%. Um, so I really was in this transitionary period of seeing the city transform. And I know those who have been here for a lot longer have seen a lot of what the film showed. Um, so after four years of living here, one thing that was really like that stuck out to me was the segregation in the city, uh, not only a racial segregation, but that of the native and transient communities, so much so that I didn't want to live here anymore. It was just 
Like, I don't know where I fit in. I don't know like what spaces are created for people to just get to know each other outside of work, school, and living. Like there wasn't really like any, for me, like a lot of the interactions that I'd had with Washingtonians was transactional. So it was a cab driver or someone checking you out at a grocery store. And I thought to myself, like, this is a really weird dynamic in this city. Um, Fast forward to five months of unemployment after college. Uh, <laughs> turned out a lot of my connections were in D.C. So I moved back to the city. But under the circumstances of getting to know the community and really taking a moment for self-reflection, was I was I being a resident in the city or was I being a community member? Um, so I took a job at Life Pieces to Masterpieces, an arts-based nonprofit east of the river. And in one month there, I had learned more about D.C. than I had in my four years living here. And I thought, how many other people are walking through the city not knowing? And I'm just going to wrap it up real quick. <laughs> but... I, I remember, you know, learning about gentrification in schools, seeing the impacts of it in uh, back home in California and also here in D.C. But for me, I thought that there was something so striking about the city. It hit a lot of the, like, the highest of, of all these statistics, right? But because it wasn't a state, it wasn't really talked about. Um, so for me, I thought, let me look academically into what is going on to better serve the community I'm serving, to better to do a better job at, at my job. And I was looking for media on it and I couldn't find anything that humanized the narrative of working class Washingtonians. There was so much research, there was so much data. Um, and then when you looked into media, it was just documentaries about Marion Barry or Len Bias or just the political landscape of the city. Um, so I thought, you know, there needs to be an ethnographic piece that really takes you into the lives of the people affected by displacement in the city. And, and in that same kind of breath, I guess, Monsa, how did that drive you, the shots of DC as someone who's not from here, who just moved here um, pretty recently, summer 2016. So for me, it was like I was seeing a whole different city. So how did, what drove you and inspired you to actually capture, you know, this photography and, and different areas of the city that people don't actually pay attention to? Uh, well, I think just what you said, that was kind of like one of our main points. We knew like shooting this documentary that we wanted it to be something that would like capture your island and like kind of entertain you while also educating you and bringing awareness and whether it made you angry or feel any type of way, we wanted it to, just to be a film that was like attractive to look at. So we use like different types of prime lenses and like different like stabilizers and stuff like that just to really get the shots and we never like was was afraid or anything to go into any neighborhood we knew kind of like it was it's beauty in every community that you go into so that was one of our main points and like just going into these communities capturing the people talking to the people getting those landmarks the people that's local natives i'm from washington dc i grew up in northeast it's like landmarks that we talk about that of course a tourist isn't going to talk about but we know like those landmarks are important to us and we also know that those landmarks are the spots that's getting like torn up right now and getting replaced by like these fancy luxury type spots. So like I just wanted to make sure like being from my city, being from DC, that I captured that and was able to like allow people to see like the beauty in whatever it was that we were shooting. So Yeah, and I think that that's really important. And one of the things that kind of um, struck me about the film, it wasn't just a film that was about gentrification, right? It was about the community um, and how we label um, you know, sometimes we're talking about like gentrification. I have the same question all the time, like gentrification, like what the fuck does that mean, right? We throw these like words out. We say, you know, felon, we, you know, label communities poor. And I feel like this was such a film that not only 
it didn't label each community, right? It found the beauty in it, but it also highlighted the trauma that lives in these communities that are replenished by different policies. The trauma continues to thrive almost in these communities, and it's an endless cycle as we saw throughout um, the three generational uh, differences. So I guess while filming and while creating this, I know that this you know didn't happen overnight. It's, it's kind of been a long time coming. What was it like um, to kind of be firsthand experiencing that trauma, still finding beauty in the communities and really changing the narrative about like, this isn't just gentrification and changing housing policies. These are entire communities that we have failed as, as Americans, as a country. Anybody can go first. <laughs> Ooh, it's a question we should get asked more often. <laughs> I was about to like cry while you're speaking. Um, yeah, so the, I started writing the film in 2015 and initially wanted to do four quadrants, each quadrant as the subject. That changed quickly after speaking to one filmmaker and she said, uh, you really should change your route and go about telling it through the narratives of, of people from here, right? And that's when I came up with the intergenerational piece. It's so hard to answer that question because Zarina is still in Woodland Terrace over three years after being displaced. Nothing has happened at Kenilworth. So every time we go back to shoot, you know, we can shoot like a talking head interview in a studio in like one of the nonprofit studios that she grew up in. In, and hear what she says and then go back to, to shoot the B-roll of her and her community. And literally she refused to go in front of the house that she, that she grew up in. It was too emotional for her. So we went to a block over that looked just like it. And, and the 11 year old who was, um, who was shot last month is one of her friends. And every time I meet her, there's a conversation about how closely tied she is to the violence that's happening in this, in this city. So it's, it's been this weird, you know, what, what do we capture? What is okay to capture? What roles do we play in her life as well as family, as mentors, as friends? And then also as storytellers who are trying to, you know, bring light to what's happening. Um, so uh, it was a very difficult four years to navigate with, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. When are we crossing the line? When, when can we have cameras on and not? But this question is like, it's hard. Uh, but Arthur Caper, you know, that for me gave me so much light in a, in a time where I was getting dark and in, in, in creating this project. Um, so when I flew to California exactly a year ago, September 19th last year, and I got, I think today's the anniversary, the 19th or the 21st, I can't remember. Um, and I got a phone call saying that Arthur Caper was burned down. No one is catching a break. Um, and to see it from seniors who lived through burning buildings, to see that happen again, for someone like Mike Perry, who has lived through being shuffled around this country, now hears the city is not putting up halfway housing. And then to see Zarina being shuffled around the city and seeing homicide rates, the highest since 2012, you know, it's there's a lack of hope, and I don't blame them because they're not seeing any changes. Um, so. It's very difficult. It's so important for this piece to be out, and I think that's why it's taken us so long, because we want to perfect it as much as we can before we release it. Um, at the same time, it's I told myself I would be in D.C. for only two years after 2014, and I'm still here, because it's... Yeah, girls, <laughs> it's 2019. It's 2019. There's too much to capture and to tell, but I'll, I'll let you take it, because I can talk forever. Yeah.
Um, uh, just to kind of piggyback off what she said about Arthur Caper, like that whole situation, it's it's a it's a lot that kind of leads a lot of people to think that that fire kind of like happened on purpose. Because when you when we we went there to shoot like B roll of after the fire happened, and we when we got there, we talked to one of the construction people, and he was telling us how the fire happened, and was talking about like how two days before that fire actually happened, there was people there that came and they were supposed to be testing like the alarm systems and everything. But when they went in there, they said they approved it and said the alarm systems worked, but during the fire, no alarm system went off. And then also right outside, DC Water had pulled up like two, like two days, day, yeah, like two days before the fire too. And they was like, the fire hydrants right outside of Arthur Caper, they was, I guess they had drained the pumps or whatever. So when the fire people came on the day of the fire, they hooked up to those fire hydrants only to find out that the water wasn't working. So then they had to unhook it, run it down two blocks and then hook up there. And then they came back to try to put out the fire. And then even still, like the fire only happened on the fourth floor, which is the top floor of the building in the far corner of the building. So the whole building wasn't damaged. But the people labeled it as just damaged property and they said everybody had to get out. And a lot of the seniors didn't even get to get their belongings. So even till this day, matter of fact, it's we just talked 12. to yeah, we just talked to John Russell and he actually said that twelve seniors have actually passed away at this point just from going through depression and losing like so much of their history through the fires because some of them had Bibles that's been passed down in their families for like sixty years and stuff like that, but they wasn't able to go back and get it because the people said it wasn't valuable or whatever. Just that whole situation, it's like, it's that's trauma right there, but people aren't going like, a lot of people look at the numbers of like gunshots and like things like that, but we don't necessarily tally up the deaths that occur from just stress and depression and things like that, that also come from gentrification. Speaking of that too, like, Zarina, like every day we almost, it seemed like almost every time we get to link up with her, like we're, we're always in like good vibes and like, hey, Zarina talking to her and stuff, she's also like that too. But she also always has a story about like a friend that got shot or somebody that got robbed. And it's always like somebody that lives on her block or like right around the corner. It's trauma daily that these people in these neighborhoods have to deal with. But it's always like anytime we're in those neighborhoods, we always receive like love from them. So it's kind of like they almost fight the trauma by like showing love where they can. Because anytime we was in the neighborhoods, they never was like, what are y'all doing with cameras? Get out the neighborhood. They was always like, oh, what's up? What y'all shooting? As soon as we told them, they was like, oh, yeah, and just talking to us over and over. And was like inviting us back to come to cookouts and all that, like play basketball with them and everything. So it was always love. And I guess it's a daily battle for them. And I guess us as camera people, it's our job to kind of capture that and allow people like this to sit in rooms where y'all actually are the people that's being game changers that can affect their lives and make it better, so. Yeah, I thought it was actually really powerful that you chose to use Arena because I guess everybody says, you know, not only are children our future, but children pick up everything around them, right? They're very observant. They're picking things up. You're teaching them when you think that, that you're not or when you think that they're not paying attention. And um, to choose Arena, I think for me, was really powerful because at 11 years old, she understood what it was to like not be able to ha to pay your electric bill, right? Or to be displaced or she even said, oh no, the, the housing is being made for white people, right? And so it's just systemic and continue continuously and just kind of touching on Monso, you were saying about, um, you know, it almost seemed like it was intentional, the fire, right? To tell this community that they weren't of value, that they're, that the things that they own were not valuable because it, they were deemed to not to be invaluable, right? So one of the things that was really fulfilling for me was 
when there was a discussion about like housing policy is driven by for-profit motives and it's not necessarily driven by human needs, right. right? And I think that that's something that's true across America. So there was a part in the film that said like, you cannot come up in America, you're trapped, you cannot come up in America. And kind of pivoting to, I guess, like less depressed um, topic, but what would be your call to action or, or do you believe that you can come up in America? Do you think that there's hope for Zerina? Do you think that there's way to give back that same type of love that they give to, to other individuals that are coming into their community that are trying to be the game changers? Do you think there's a way for us to call people to action and, and what would those solutions be to provide hope in these communities? Yeah. Um... I know, so that we are working on a second documentary and, and we're focusing a lot on what does that look like. We work with Dr. Bruce Purnell a lot and he's always, you know, saying that if you look at a lot of communities of color in this country, um, particularly black communities, we talk about resilience and their ability to make it through. But he's always like, they're making it through for the next whipping. It's always. So at a certain point, people are going to stop having hope. And that's something that you see with the generation from like our generation and even the generation following us. But he says the opposite of trauma is not resilience. The opposite of trauma is joy. So what does it look like to build joy in these communities? What does it look like for these communities to have joy, to be happy, to have, you know? Um, and I think what one thing in particular is for us to just be honest about the way the city is going and who it's developing for in this country in general, but I'll speak more specifically to DC because that's what we focused on. You know, I think as a black person in this city, not from this city, it's very easy for me to navigate this city and have access and agency. So I, you know, we worked with DC Fiscal Policy Institute and I asked them to conduct data on, we, we look at the data of the wealth gap in D.C. between black and white families. We look at unemployment amongst the black community versus the white community. But can we divvy up the black community a little more? How many of the people in those statistics are transplants? You know, a lot of black people move to the city for opportunity and gain that opportunity. And, and I'm very aware that I'm one of them. I think what's important, A, is that we elect officials that actually care about the community. Whether they look like us or not, there's people from the community that are on that are elected that their intentions are not to develop for the community. Um, and I think there's a facade when we see, even, you know, and when we work with the Don't Mute DC movement, but I've been very clear with them as well, like, let's not, it's very easy to throw a hashtag on something, but what's actually happening? It's easier to get behind music than it is to get behind violence and low-income housing being taken away and all these things. So I think, A, what's important is that the, both the native and transient community in this city are aware of the policies, are aware of the people who are elected, um, and actually challenge them, and that we get more involved. I think it starts on the foundational level, it starts off from conversations. Many of my friends who aren't from DC, up until this film, didn't know anything about the history of this city, didn't know what go-go music was, didn't know that the city was called Chocolate City. So when they see U Street, being developed when they see that, oh, wait, I didn't used to go out here and now I can go out here and wait a second, I don't notice any black people in the restaurants around here. They're not questioning what happened, right? So I think it's very important for us to start just by having these conversations, understanding the history and from there holding people accountable for joy and to really get to like the trauma and building hope in the community, we need to fund the grassroots organizations that are doing the work. We are not experts, we are not people from here, we have not gone through the same exact history, 
and trauma that the community has. So for Dr. Bruce, funding is like such a big issue. He works literally, we follow him and we get tired. We have to take naps. I fall asleep when we're shooting because he'll go from 7 a.m. literally to like 1 a.m. back to back, driving to different cities, traveling it globally, like coming back to just bring these global practices to the community and, and make sure that there's healing centers and that rec centers aren't just a place for recreation, but it's a place where people can come and heal. So this is what we're working on with our second piece, but there is no funding, no funding for the film, no funding for the organizations. Um, and, and, you know, so we're using this piece as a way to get more national attention to really put the money in the hands of the people that have the expertise to build these communities up. Ditto, ditto. Okay. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to open it up for um, questions. If anybody has questions. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Ashley, and I'm the senior regional organizer for NCRC, also a native of the South Bronx. You guys did an amazing job at visualizing the truth. Um, and so my question, I think you kind of alluded to it, that your second um, film is going to touch upon, but how effective do you think Mayor Muro Bowser's order on housing goals of um, creating 36,000 new housing units, 12,000 of them for affordable LMI folks is going to be effective. And are you guys going to touch upon that um, in your second film and have political um, representatives, local council members uh, reach out to you guys to talk about disparities that you see in uh, this community? So in terms of initiatives to build more affordable housing. I think, again, the question goes to what is affordable housing. We speak to the equation in the film. Um, it's something that a lot of people in the city aren't aware of. So when we look at, you know, we use Brooklyn Manor as a big example for this film, even though we only covered a little bit. There's a documentary coming out on that neighborhood specifically, or maybe it already came out. But when we look at the numbers of how many families are waiting for affordable housing and how many families are homeless in the city and living in, in motels on New York Ave, it doesn't add up to the numbers of housing units that are being promised that are affordable. And within those affordable housing, is it even accessible? Do their incomes even, like A, multi-generational households oftentimes don't make the cut for affordable housing. If you look at the majority of black households in this city, they're multi-generational households. So a lot of families in Brooklyn Manor, a big thing that, that they were speaking about and trying to raise awareness with Kenyon McDuffie was that you're separating senior housing um, from family housing. And a lot of us live with our grandparents, right? So you're essentially breaking up these families. So I think when I hear statistics about how many units are coming that are affordable or what tax write-off that developers get to save a couple units in their building for affordable housing, I'm very skeptical just because we've been on the grounds and we see that the people don't actually have access to that. So the other thing is, you know, is it accessible and do people have agency? Like I always go back to that because when I first moved here after college, I came here for college and when I moved back to work, my income at a small nonprofit made me eligible for affordable housing. I didn't apply because I knew it wasn't intended for me. but. I know so many other people, and they have the right to apply for that, right? But we also have the flexibility of t taking time off to wait in line all day or, you know, all these other things that are, you know, apply online for all these things because we have access to internet and computers and smartphones. And so it's, if you look on paper, it looks great. But when you actually break it down and see who has access to actually get that, the numbers go down. Yeah, so we're, so this is not the final cut of the film. We're actually working on the final cut right now. And with everything that's kind of gone on this year, 
We're redoing the opening of the film. So yes, we are going to be incorporating more of that. We did reach out to every single council member and the mayor, and the only person that responded was Trayon White. Um, so it, and then, you know, the title of the film in and of itself, you know, people don't want to be a part of it if they're in politics in the city. The set, the final cut of this film, we are including more of that. The second film is more about healing and trauma in the community, so it won't be as focused on housing, though that will obviously be an underlying theme. Uh, yeah, just to kind of piggyback off of what Miyote was saying, a lot of time, I think one thing that you could look to in this cut right now that kind of like explains like how it's like a surface level like display that they're really doing something for affordable housing when really it's not effective is when the lady, uh, Cheryl Brunson, she was the one that was kind of like standing. She, it looked like she was like in pajamas. That was because that interview wasn't planned at all. We was like shooting outside and she was just like, yeah, come inside and start talking. And then was looking at me like why I wasn't recording. So we just like kind of threw the cameras up and started shooting. She's like, but, I got things to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Like she <laughs> just started talking. Yeah, like, oh, jump as soon as we walked in she just started talking right away but um like even just like everything they was explaining that's going on in their neighborhood it's like they can't even stand outside on their stoop because they get an infraction if you get i think it's two infractions then you get kicked out your unit so it's like you could say like yeah i'm gonna make this uh affordable for you or whatever but what's the likelihood that your friends or somebody's gonna stand outside on the porch like everybody does that when they comes visit when they come to visit somebody so it's literally police that wait on the corner to see them doing that and then as soon as they do it, they pull up on them, harass them. Of course, they searching for drugs and anything like that. And then once they do that, they could at the at the base they could write an infraction. On top of that, of course, they could try to like take them to jail or anything like that too. So it's like you you see like this kind of like facade of even like what's happening right by Howard Theater, how they're building those new luxury hotels, but keeping the front of it or whatever. It's just like like you see in these spaces where they keep the front of these historic buildings or whatever, but literally right, literally inside of that building is all luxury and that has nothing to do with the front of that building. So and then also it's um, but we met a lady and she said in the '90s that she had a lot to do with like um, she used to go to like city development meetings and stuff. And she said in the 90s that they actually laid out a whole blueprint for D.C. And like they just said, like, this is how D.C. is going to be. This is what we want. These are the type of people we want to come in to live here and everything. So if you start in the 90s and get to here, it's literally like putting us in the middle. It was a 50 year plan that they laid out. So if you start in the 90s and get to here, it's literally like putting us like right in the middle of what they want. And then when you see like the Washington Post, how they released the article talking about hyper gentrification in D.C., and saying it's like the most most gentrified city in DC, like you kind of understand that that it has to be like a machine and a plan behind that for that to be happening. So, the question up here. Yeah, for sure. Hey, incredible job, truly, truly incredible job. So, I'm originally from Detroit. Uh, Detroit is another historically black city. You know. What up, though? Yeah. What up, though? <laughs> and so I moved out here back in January, and the first place I looked move was Columbia Heights because I'm like you know what I want to have a little bit of the Detroit culture there but it wasn't there so I was like Northeast I moved out to Northeast and I stay right on 8th Street and just in the time that I've been there just from January till now like it's completely different what, what the reason I came in was because I wanted a little bit of Detroit I grew up on the west side of Detroit I love the black community it's what raised me you know so I wanted kind of that culture but it's already just in eight months. It's changed. Like we're not talking about 50 years. We're not talking about 25 years. I'm talking about eight months. I'm seeing buildings completely be erected from scratch. But one beautiful thing that I've noticed as you go down further down A Street, you know, there's economic empowerment in the black community in that specific area. What's unfortunate is it's more 
first generation Africans that it's not unfortunate, it's still good, but it's unfortunate that the folks that have been here are not, they're not able to accomplish what these folks are able to accomplish. But there's a lot of businesses that are being staples to the black community and serving the black community and kind of holding their ground and saying, if we're not going to get it through legislation, we're going to go through, get it through economic empowerment. And I was wondering, I know trauma and mental health is a huge, huge discussion and that's completely overlooked all day, every day in the black community and really community of color. We're not supposed to talk about our feelings. We're not supposed to talk about what's actually going on. I was just wondering, in this next film, is there a piece touching on really the importance of economic empowerment? Nipsey Hussle has, you know, this phrase that he always says, all money in. It's like the the using economic empowerment to empower your community, make sure that uh, in Nigeria, you know, it's a big initiative, you know. Uh, Nigeria's getting gentrified, man. We're talking about Africa's getting gentrified, right? By the Chinese. Yeah, and and so so you got you got these initiatives in Nigeria now where it's like, yo, make sure your doctor is Nigerian, make sure your accountant is Nigerian. Make, so it's like, has that piece thought been thought about at all? Like the black community on 8th Street and the ones that haven't been completely washed out um, to empower that black community to support economic empowerment and the business owners in that as long as they hold them socially responsible. Has that piece been looked at at all and trying to figure out that, that way to um, balance that out with the mental health and obviously reverse gentrification or just halt it as much as possible, but also empower the black community business owners? We didn't include that in this film as much. Um, we show what what U Street used to look like and we allude to the black businesses and what economic wealth looked like. So we work with uh, Desiree, who is the founder of the First Floor Initiative. Anytime I get like someone who's interested in like black economic development, I, I you know turn them to her because she's like the expert on that. But what she's been doing um, in, in this, you're giving us an idea to maybe do a short piece on that. With the second piece, we're following a high school student, a high school age student. So there, there's room for us to definitely, we're still in early development and production of it. So there's room for us to add a lot of what you guys are talking about today. Um, but, but we can definitely look into doing a specific short piece on what you just spoke about. So what Desiree does in, on H Street actually, they just finished I think their one year being located there next to the Whole Foods at Apollo. There's like an open retail space. And what she works on largely is working with developers who have some sort of initiative to work with the community and subsidizing, like having a large retailer like Whole Foods come in. So next door you can subsidize, you know, the retail space and, and to really bring in an affordable space. So it's not healthy for corridors to look economically homogenous, right? Which a lot of, if you go to U Street, down 14th Street corridor, all of those luxury, like, furniture stores and just knickknack stores and all these things. It's not its not representative of the community, well, of the community that used to be there. H Street is the space where it is a little more unique. You still have a lot of native Washingtonians there. Um, so she works primarily on, on finding those spaces and working those deals with developers. So, But we can definitely look into, because it is an important piece, so we're, I'm happy to look into doing a piece on that. Well, thank you both for doing this work and for being here today. Um, I think it should be said, unsurprisingly, this room is filled with folks who are from other places, transplants. We have Indiana, Pittsburgh, Nigeria. I'm from the Bay. Yee, you know. Um, and so going back to a, a call to action, besides beyond our jobs and working for a nonprofit that focuses on economic justice work, as guests really in this space, you know, what is the obligation that we have as folks who don't aren't from here um, to make a positive contribution and try to reverse what's going on. Like, what, if any, can we do? And I just thought it'd be a good space to share that, being that you know a lot of the folks here aren't from here. 
Well, something I tell Mayote all the time, like when I first met her, she she was already like shooting the film and everything like that. But she was always just talking about how like she's not from DC, even to this day, like she'll bring that up. To, but it's like, I mean, DC embracing her at this point. But I would say like for her, it kind of worked to her favor that she wasn't from DC and was able to tell this story about DC. Because like somebody from DC, they might've just been focusing only on like the neighborhood they're from. Or just like in DC, it's so much like areas where it's different. A person from one neighborhood can't go to the next because it's like some historical beef or whatever that, that they went through. So they're not even like supposed to be in this neighborhood. So it's like all of that is stuff that people, natives in DC will have to sift through to try to tell an authentic story. Whereas somebody that's not from DC, they could literally walk in there. They could be like, they could talk to this person from Northeast or whatever. They could go to the other neighborhood in Southeast, talk to them or whatever, and then tell this broader story that's inclusive of everybody that's from DC. So I think you all as like transplants, like y'all have that voice too. Like y'all are fluid in DC basically. Like y'all could move wherever y'all want to move and y'all could kind of like whatever ideas y'all have or anything that y'all kind of want to help in DC or like push in DC, y'all could kind of do that without having to sift through like what neighborhood you're from and stuff like that. Yeah, I think, again, I'm going to bring it back to the grassroots level. A lot of us have, whether it's time or resources or connections that can be so beneficial to grassroots, grassroots nonprofits. So many of them are on the verge of getting disbanded, losing all their funding. So they're just operating out of like whatever they can, right? So if you guys have a grant department here that is really good at grant writing or even like searching for funds, like I'm happy to share like a list of like small nonprofits in Ward 7 and Ward 8 that need access to funding. And even like a $5,000 grant can do so much for them, which is like nothing for a big nonprofit. Um, so I think that's definitely it. access, like even just like supplies, like technological supplies, not like pens and pens. Let me specify, like, you know, sometimes offices get revamped and stuff. And then all of a sudden it's like all this furniture and computers and stuff that aren't even that old. There's so many like places that can use that. So even just like thinking more on like the, what do I have direct access to that can be so beneficial. And I think, you know, working two years at a grassroots nonprofit in Ward 7 taught me like how much like one volunteer, one intern can actually have an impact on, on, on their work. So I think that's like a really good starting point. And that's essentially what this film came out of was me working there. So I think that's definitely just like really the grassroots. They're the ones like working tirelessly every single day um, and, and not getting attention or funding from the city. Hi, outside of my job here at NCRC, I also hold an elected role and position in the DC government. I am a committeeman on the Democratic State Committee. And I'm thinking of one of the comments you made earlier, how some of the poor members of our city are losing hope. And I'm thinking of Ward 8, especially. Uh, this past election cycle, a year ago, June, they had their lowest turnout in voting and that sounds like people really losing their their, their hope and, and their will to fight what advice would you give them not to uh, give up and what could they do yeah i think um so we was it the department of energy and environment or environment energy um they screened the film in front of a cohort of like 180 youth from ward 7 and ward 8 that were interning with them over the summer and all of them were like we love this film like we saw ourselves in it we saw our neighborhoods people that talk like us look like us like this is not a city for us anymore and i think 
it's hard to speak to like knowing it's discouraging looking at how it's going and they can read through the bullshit. So you can't go up to them and be like, it's going to get better. It's going to build, you know? So the, the guy that I was working with who organized there said, you know, he's on the team working on the sustainability plan for DC and it's a 20 year plan. And he was like, sustainability in my community doesn't look like a 20 year plan. It's a two year plan. What are you going to do immediately for this community? So I think it really has to be like, it can't just be a conversation with like us and the youth or us and in, in the communities east of the river. They have to have a reason to have hope, right? So I think you know, we're honest in, they know what exists. They know the, about systemic oppression and, and, and what's going on here. So it's more of it is, you know, they need to see more, like I think this film helps in a lot of ways to know that, okay, your story matters and your story is being heard and we're taking it to a larger scale so action can be done. And I think that's helped a lot. Um, and just having more, you know, showing up, even cameras being there. Like we were just shooting in Congress Heights three weeks ago a father was murdered on the playground in front of his kids and a lot of the kids playing. And we had we went to go shoot um, with Dr. Bruce Purnell, who's doing healing sessions with them. And they like called their mom, like, I'm gonna be on TV, come here, like the cameras are here, like performing, like Mansa, can you get us dancing, all these things. But just to know that people care and that people are there and that their voice is being heard, because it's not giving a voice to the voiceless. They've always had a voice, but it's have we been listening. So I think that's what we need to do as a city uh, on the government level, like actually care for the people, like not just people who are coming in and bringing money. Because at the end of the day, this isn't sustainable. Having homogenous socioeconomic status is not sustainable. What does the city look like 20 years from now when even there was a piece that came out in the Washington Post, I think it was like four years ago because it, it was about millennials no longer being able to afford living in the city and looking at Baltimore. And it's, so who is the city being developed for if no one can afford it? No one wants to spend half their income on rent, you know? So it's, so I think that's, that's kind of the answer to that. Thank you for asking that. Yeah. Uh, so I met me, I think he was already shooting it for like a year or so. So when I first met her, she had already had like some footage, but um, most of the time, like it was me shooting and even like shooting this film, I went through two camera thefts, like where my camera got stolen out of a car. And that happened twice back to back, well kind of back to back within like three months of each other. So most of the time it was me kind of like, whether it was me asking like, cause I got a lot of homies and friends that work in film too. So whether it was me getting equipment from them or just like once I got my equipment again, like of course anytime she hit me for an interview, I was always ready. But a lot of times it was just me, man, shooting on, D we, we shot most of it on DSLRs, like the Canon 5D Mark III and the Canon 5D Mark IV is like what I shoot on now. And then like those shots kind of like where, like it's like stable shots and we was like moving through the city. We shot those on um, the DJI Ronin. I mean, just from experience, man, cause I shoot a lot of music videos and stuff like that too. So it was kind of like trying to blend like some of the things I do for music videos with like blending it towards like what she wants to do with this documentary. And like, I'm hopefully I always, like anytime people say they like how the film look, like I'm, I'm glad man, because that, that really like fills my heart for Every now and then, like for interviews, we, yeah, <laughs> for interviews we had two cameras. But like if it was B-roll or anything, I'll literally like shoot it from this way and then go to the other side and just shoot it again, so. So if we don't have um, any more questions, um, I'm gonna thank you again for coming. And yeah, that's a wrap. <laughs> Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Gracias a todos. Thank you so much for joining me once again for another episode of the Fair Housing and Racial Justice podcast. 
really hope that you enjoyed this conversation. We're excited to bring you more conversations like these that talk to individuals that are not only highlighting but addressing these issues within our communities that directly impact the racial wealth divide. And for more information, please be sure to visit our Race and Wealth website, which is raceandwealth.com to check out some more shows um, like Preach to the Choir, Race and Wealth Spotlight, Radical Imagination. And also for more information about the documentary What Happened in Chocolate City, you can visit wh2cc.com. Ciao.